Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Always a pleasure to be here with family. And um, if it's your first time tonight or you haven't been part of this Ephesians series, we've been going through this book called Ephesians from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 6. And we're in some of the final stages um, of this book. And it's been a powerful time, wouldn't you agree? That God really is unveiling and opening our eyes to the eternal purpose that he has for us as his people. And who, who was here last week to hear Noel? Wasn't that massive? This covenant that God has for us, his absolute devotion and commitment to fulfill his side. And just, I was, when I was listening to it in the car on the way to work, I, I was staggered and amazed. It almost almost lost my breath at just the beauty of what he had called us to. Um, and, you know, I, 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 honestly, I, I'm finding it hard to, to give words to um, how incredible God's love for us is um, and how keen he is for us to see and experience that and live in it to the fullest measure, hey? Um, so moving on from what Noel talked about last week, this evening, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, um, verse, five, uh, f- verse number 5, all the way through to verse number 9. Now, I just want to rejog your memories. Um, probably about two months ago, um, Joe Hughes um, started on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, looking at the relationship between children and parents. And so she talked about... All of our relationships, children and parents, marriage, slaves and their masters, and she pulled out of that, that all of these relationships were really a foreshadow of our relationship with Christ. She, she talked about within these relationships that the key phrase was, as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents as to the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters as to the Lord. So that's the wider context that we're looking about tonight. So it's quite a fascinating little verse, this Ephesians chapter 6, 5 to 9. Because in some ways, you might think slaves, slaves and their masters, potentially the most irrelevant passage in the book of Ephesians. There's no slavery anymore. We live in New Zealand, the land of the free. Is it? Oh, no, that's America. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we live in New Zealand, there's no slaves, there's no masters. What, what on earth does this passage have to do with me? Now, if you're viewing it through the Bible as an academic study, trying to draw these direct comparisons, yep, no worries, you can head home now if, if you want to. But if you see this as a living and eternal word, then every single passage in this book is charged with divine intention for us as his people. So this evening, I hope that when you hear slaves and masters, you see yourselves caught up in this much wider eternal context, this living word of God that speaks, it cuts and divides, it judges the thoughts and the the intentions of the heart, that while you might not be a physical slave or a physical master, The truth in here is all designed and destined to produce a freedom in you of an eternal kind, all right? So this is a full participation evening, just like all of our evenings. Um, So are you you ready to, to do your part? Are you prepared? Are your ears switched on? Are you sitting on the edge of your seat? I'll take that nervous laughter. As a yes and amen, I'm inspired so much confidence. All right, let's have a look. Open your Bibles up, and this will be a passage for tonight. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleases, But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Mm, Interesting, interesting little passage. Slaves, be obedient to those who your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. Slaves, be obedient. Does that not grind you a little bit? Slaves, be obedient. In this world where so-called freedom is the ultimate goal, and the church throughout the centuries has wrestled with this very thing. What does the Bible have to say about slavery? Does it endorse it? Or does it condemn it? What do you think? This is, I'm, I'm being serious, this has been a, a, a raging debate throughout the centuries, especially in times like when we look at back in the day, even in recent years like the apartheid. Slavery, and yet Paul, it's almost as if the whole idea of slavery is, he is totally and completely cool with it. Interesting, eh? He doesn't say, slaves, make sure you fight for your rights. Get your, get your picket, get up to Parliament. Get all your brothers and go and bang down the door and win your slavery. You know, and we, we're so inspired by films like Braveheart. Has anyone seen that? They will never take <laughs> our freedom. Just like that, eh? Need, need someone else to come and give me an accent. <laughs> All right, I gave it a go. I gave it a go. I'm actually part Scottish, so it's far removed. <laughs> Freedom, something to fight for, something to stick up, stand up for your rights. You know, here in New Zealand, we're famous for it. The women's, what is it called, Test The suffrage, the suffrage movement. Hardened feminists getting out and making sure that they've got equal rights to men. This is our Kiwi culture. We're not going to be slaves to anyone. And yet, the Apostle Paul has absolutely no problem whatsoever at the concept of slavery. And actually, the Bible initiates it, endorses it, encourages it. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a God and an Apostle who is perfectly content with the idea of slavery? You know, there's been so many attempts by the church to justify this away. You know, they say, actually, well, slavery back in the day wasn't as bad as modern-day slavery. You know, slavery was actually a really nice and positive thing. They had healthy relationships between each other. Well, actually, Paul addresses that as well. And in First Peter 2, verse 8, he says, and it's almost like, you know, to hit the nail on head, he says, Slaves, be obedient to your masters or submit to your masters, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So if slavery was only endorsed as a positive thing, why is is Paul encouraging those who have been treated unreasonably to not buck against their slavery, but actually to submit to it? Are these not bizarre and challenging things? Do they not make you think, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on here? Is God ruthless? Does he not care about me? Is he not concerned about social justice? Social justice. This is what the church is known for. Being good people, doing good things. And yet Paul is not concerned with social justice as much as he's concerned with divine righteousness. And in pursuing social justice, the church has disregarded the the, the full eternal purpose of God, which was never about justice, but about righteousness. Social justice. I've been to university, and I've had complete courses on this. You know, social justice is about improving the quality of life, 
So much academic study has been um, all around. How do we improve the quality of life? How do we improve the quality of life here in New Zealand? How do we improve the quality of life for those living in poverty, perhaps overseas? Let me tell you, the gospel has nothing to do with improving the quality of your current life. But everything to do with the discovery of a brand new life source that is complete and distinctly different to your current life. In fact, while social justice is about fighting for your rights, divine righteousness is completely submitting every single right that you have, except the one right to know him and to be transformed by him. That's the only right that you have as a Christian. And if you're bent on pursuing any other right, you might have a better life, but you'll completely miss the fullness of the eternal purpose that he has for you and those around you. You know, Jesus, in John 27 and 28, is preparing to go to the cross. And it says this, Jesus is, he lets us in on his his thought patterns, his attitude, his perspective, and he says this. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to go through one of the most horrific experiences. And he says, Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why is this relevant to us? Why would we even bother looking at this this passage on slavery? Because these attitudes permeate mankind as every, in the same way as everything else we've talked about. So often as Christians, we've cried, God, save me from my wife. Save me from my kids. Save me from my boss. Save me from the stress and the strain and the struggle of life. Get me out of here. Give me a break. Give me some chill time. But he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Actually, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I wonder if when we were confronted with a situation that what that seemed to us like modern day slavery, instead of saying, Father, save me, from where I'm in, get me out of here. We said, Father, glorify your name. Do a work in me. Allow the situation, allow the things going on around me to humble me, to bring me to my knees, to allow it to submitting myself to the Holy Spirit of God that there would be a divine work done within me that I wouldn't just be saved from the hour from the situation, but I will be saved from myself, saved from my, saved, saved from petitioning from, for my own rights, saved from living for my own comfort, saved, saved from living for my own self in my relationships, in my family, in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids. Father, glorify your name. You know, if we had that perspective and we had that attitude, then the scriptures like do all things without grumbling and complaining would become real. Is it? (laughs) Yeah. So if I would say to you, give a go what I'm just talking to you about. Instead of allowing those thoughts, that grumbling and complaining, your perspective being focused on yourself, lift your eyes. Focus yourself on him. Submit yourself to the Lord. 
and allow him to do a work within you where Christ is formed in your heart to a measure where the things that you are complaining about now are momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that you're being called to. Absolutely. And so he says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. What I'm talking about tonight is not about being small. It's not about being oppressed. It's about overwhelmingly conquering in life. It's about a quality of life on the inside of you that is greater than the things of the world. It's a quality of life that makes physical slavery seem like a joy in comparison to the life that is within you and the sincerity of your heart and love and passion and free will. I put here, true freedom from slavery is something that happens in us so that we can live as he did on the earth. Let me give you an example. If you want to flick your Bibles to John chapter 8. The title is, The Truth Will Make You Free. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Interesting passage. Fascinating passage. So Jesus is having some dialogue with these Jews who he says have come to believe in him. So these are not non-Christians, not people who have never heard the gospel. These are, these are Jewish people who have become believers of Christ. And their expectation is that they are free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. But Jesus cuts right to the chase. And he says, he talks to them about what it means to actually know the truth. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I wonder if you've heard that verse before, but phrased in a different way. You see, so often it just rolls off the tongue. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Interesting. The truth will set you free, but is that what it actually says? Now, while this is not about words, in some translations, the translations that have been slightly, um, what do you call um, not dramatized, um, paraphrased, some that have been slightly paraphrased for readability, such as um, the, the NIV and um, the message, some of these other versions, they do say set you free. But actually the translation of the word, the literal translation that you'll see in any of the, the more literal Bibles is make you free. So the NASB, the King James, the direct translation of that word is not set you free, but make you free. Interesting. Why is this so important? We're not wrangling about words here, but we're, draw, we're drawing on something that cuts at the heart of what God has come to do and the freedom that he's come to give. You see, being set free is something that happens to you. Being made free is something that happens in you. And for so long, the church has been so focused on the things that set them free but they haven't been made free. You know, it says you'll know the truth and the truth will 
make you free. You know, we can pray for healing, physical, emotional healing. You can come up to the front and have the old and you can be set free in a moment. You might receive an emotional buzz. You might even have a genuine encounter with the Holy Spirit that in that moment does some sort of divine work. That is absolutely legitimate, and I sorry I shouldn't have mocked it because it's absolutely part of God's. It's part of the the ministry of the body, and it's right and it's good. But as soon as that ministry is the 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 place of freedom, you're fallen short of the freedom that He came to give. See, freedom, being set free in a moment, is good but being made free is eternal. And he says this, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What is it that will make you free? It's not a trick question. Knowing the truth and who's the truth. I wonder if instead of pursuing all forms of ministry from other people, I wonder if it was actually about coming to a genuine gnosko, like we heard this morning from Sandra, knowledge of the truth that would make us free, not in a moment, but for a lifetime and into eternity. To be made free. What does it mean to be made free? See, you can be set free and experience the goodness of God as he heals your body, as he it comes and touches you and reminds you of his love after you've you know been caught up in emotional turmoil. But then you can go home and the weeks go on and while you remember what happened back then, you hadn't come to a knowledge of the truth. Your thinking hadn't changed. Your attitude hadn't changed. Your perspective hadn't changed enough that when something else popped up of the same nature, you needed to be saved and set free all over again. We should be going from strength to strength and not from ministry to ministry. The the truth comes to renew your thinking, to renew your mind, to renew your perspective. You know, Jesus talked about, he he, he frees... He prays for some and he ministers to a a person who has been afflicted by a demon for all his life. So what I'm what don't hear me saying that I'm not into that stuff. Hear me saying that I am, but it's a it's it's something it's like healing. It's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate eternal thing. It's both. So Jesus he sets this demonic person free, and then he tells this little parable. He says it's like these demons going and, and leaving. And the house is swept and it's put in order. And the rooms are empty, clean, tidy. And he says that this demonic spirit goes out, does what it does, and it comes back and it brings seven of his cronies to come and inhabit that house that's been swept clean and put in order. Why? Because they had been set free, but not made free. They had received freedom in a moment. They had been delivered from a demonic bondage that had held them captive their whole life. But it wasn't enough. It's not enough to be set free, to receive something in a moment and not to receive and to be made, to be made free in a way that absolutely, that your life is transformed, your thinking is transformed, your attitudes are transformed, your entire operating system, your mode of being is transformed because you receive freedom in a moment and then you'll need another moment and another moment and another moment and you have to receive counsel from this person, from Greg and from Paul and then from Vera and then, oh my goodness, then we have weekly catch-ups because... 
We were set free, but we weren't made free. And the truth will make you free. Matthew chapter 18. You don't need to you don't need to follow just listen. So Jesus is telling a little parable which is actually about forgiveness here. And he says, "For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him." But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you for everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, one who had a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Interesting. So you have here a servant who owes his master a debt. And times are tough and there's no way that he can repay that debt. So the the, the master says, look, honestly, there's only one thing that I'm going to do. I I, I can do. I'm going to have to sell you. That's it. I'm selling you again into probably a, a greater form of slavery. And he humbles himself. He prostrates himself on the ground. And the master has compassion on him, forgives him of his debt. The man is set free from the debt that he owed to his master. Nick Minute, this servant goes and hits up his his slave or the one who owes him a debt. Come on, mate. Give me back what you owe. Same old situation. The guy humbles himself. Hey, have mercy on me. Can you not? No, Sorry, mate, that's it. You owe me big time. And he insists that this man gives him the debt. Why? Because he was set free, but he wasn't made free. He received mercy, but he didn't become merciful. He received forgiveness, but he didn't become forgiving. You see, the message of the gospel comes to set you free. Why? Because he wants you to become made free. He doesn't want you to receive mercy and that be that. He wants you to receive mercy to become merciful, to become mercy. It's not just about receiving love. It's about becoming love. And I wonder if possibly... We've been so bent and so focused on receiving love, so focused on ourselves, so consumed by ourselves, that we've missed the entire purpose of why he came, which wasn't just that we would receive love, receive mercy, it was so that we would become love. And in the pursuit of this, we've totally missed this. And actually in pursuing becoming love, we enter into a quality of an understanding of the graciousness and the love that the Father has for us in a way that you may never have imagined before. See, all those prayers that were so focused on you, focused on getting, even spiritual getting, but from a wrong motive. He says, you don't have because you don't ask, but then when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. So you actually don't receive. I wonder if we asked him for the right things in the right way. We might even receive the things that we thought we needed. Interesting, hey?
Servants can be set free, but bond servants have been made free. You know, there was an interesting study that was done. I, I can't actually, I looked on the internet, I can't actually remember the name of the study. You might have to Google it later on. But there was a study done, an academic study, where they took um, poor people and they put them in, um, in a wealthy suburb and a wealthy house. They took them out of their poverty and they transferred them into a new location to live as people that were wealthy. And then part two of the study, they took wealthy people out from where they were, out from their lives, and they put them in an impoverished area, in an impoverished health, and they left them to their way to see what would happen. I'm not sure what the time period was, maybe a number of years. They came back to find that the people who had been in poverty but had been put into wealth and prosperity, their houses had been transformed and they looked almost exactly like where they had come from. And those who had been wealthy had actually transformed their impoverished houses and they looked on the inside and in the feel and in the culture and the house, they looked just like they had originally in wealth. Interesting, eh? Why was that? Take someone out of poverty and give them freedom. Give them prosperity. Why? They had been set free. They had been taken out, but they hadn't been made free. See, I work at the moment at work and income. And this scenario goes on and on and on. People who are impoverished physically, but actually the real poverty is, is right here. It's exactly the same issue in the church. People are seeking freedom, but they refuse to come to the one who's the source of freedom. They've been seeking to be transferred out from their lives, thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side. They've pursued being set free. These people were taken out of their houses and put into luxury, prosperity. But actually the poverty wasn't out here. The slavery wasn't out here. The slavery wasn't here and in here. You see, I wonder if the gospel actually does hold all of the answers to life all of the answers to our human condition. You know, all the knowledge of all the combined universities in the world will not be able to make you free. In the pursuit of our freedom, we've become slaves. Next verse, not by way of eye service as man pleases, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. I put here, it is those who are free from everyone and everything that are able to live as the true bond servants of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this, If I was living to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What's a bondservant? A bondservant is someone who's been a slave, who's been a servant, probably potentially for their entire lives, or even if it was Old Testament times, maybe they've been a slave for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, the custom was that all of the slaves would be set free. But a bondservant, at the end of their seven years, there was absolutely no expectation to then continue working for your master. 
But bond servants out of love, because they had so enjoyed the quality of relationship that they had shared with their masters, willingly, out of absolutely no expectation, no obligation, chose to continue to subject themselves and to stay slaves or to stay servants of that master, not because they had to, but because they chose to and because they want to. So all of these slaves were set free. And many of them went their own ways. Oh my goodness, the seven years is finally over. Get myself out from this burden. I'm off. I'm away. And yet, there were these few called the bond servants who chose out of love and out of willingness to then come and to serve and submit themselves to their masters. See, these slaves had been set free, but the bond servants had been made free because they recognized that their freedom wasn't being released from their so-called bondage. It was being released from the toil, the strain of living as a man-pleaser. So Paul says, if I was living to please man, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Now Moses, I think, is such a good example. Moses, this man who's grown up in all the wealth and the riches of Egypt, a man who was had been set free, you think indeed. This man who looks out and he sees the affliction of his people, And he comes and he thinks in his own mind and he rationalizes and he thinks, oh my goodness, my people are slaves. They're in bondage. My, oh, I just can't bear this anymore. And so he takes his, I think it's his sword and he sees um, an Israelite being beaten up by the Egyptians and he takes it into his own hands and he's like, my goodness, I've got to do something about this. I've got to set my people free. And he kills the guy afflicting the Israelites. See, Moses was a man who who had been set free. His mother had put him in a basket, sent him down the river, and he had grown up as a man of great wealth, great prosperity, living as a king or a prince, a man who had been set free from um, this um, persecution in Egypt. He had been set free. But yet he was, how do I say, he was set free. But when he saw, he was compelled by what he saw to act. He had been set free, but he hadn't been made free. Why? Because the world and what he saw the way that seemed right to him was what governed his thinking, his behavior, his attitudes. And so God, in this wisdom that's so foreign to man, looked out and saw the slavery and the abuse of his so-called chosen people, the Israelites. And seeing that the man Moses had been set free but hadn't been made free, then was perfectly content to wait for 40 long years for the man Moses to become made free so that he could then be a type, a foreshadow, an apostle of an entire people who would not just be set free, but made free. See, the story goes on. All of these years later, Moses, who had been shaped and molded by the backside of the desert, a man who had been humbled, a man who was involved in the most dirty work that there was, a man who maybe for the first time had a taste of humility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Copyright, Luke Harris, 2017. <laughs> Got you, mate. <laughs> 
Moses, the meekest man then on the face of the earth, forms, shaped in poverty, gone from being a prince to being a no one, gone from being free to becoming a bondservant, then has this enviable task of leading an entire people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Why was it that Moses had to go through this process? Why was God not content to allow Moses to, cre- to create this crusade when he saw the poverty and affliction of his people? Why was he not okay with him taking action? Did he not care about the social justice of his people? Why was he content to just look on and let it happen? What is the phrase? Inaction is worse than what is it? I can't remember. It's plastered on the walls of my work somewhere. God was perfectly content to allow the suffering of his people for 40 long years while he formed and shaped the man Moses, a man who was free yet became a slave so that he might be used as a vessel to set many free. So why wasn't it enough? Why when he was keen and eager, raring to go in Egypt, so much so that he was prepared to take his sword, to take his placard down to parliament, to knock on Pharaoh's door. He was filled with zeal. He was, his mouth was welling up. He was like, man, come on, let me at him. The man, Moses, had to be humbled and to become a slave. Why? Because then, when it was time, God would use him as a vessel. And he took him to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Oh, what does it mean to serve him? Well, if we had started way back when, that service may very well have been a slave-like service and not becoming bond slaves. Say, Moses was charged with the task of leading the Egyptians out of Egypt and into the promised land. So they escape. They escape the plagues. The blood of the lamb gets put on the door frames of the house. They escape the spirit of death passing over the entire nation. God and his almighty power parts the Red Sea and the Israelites come out unscathed onto dry land on the other side. My goodness, this is a nation who had just been set free. They were delivered from the Egyptians. But don't leave the play in the intermission. My goodness. (laughs) The Israelites had been set free, but that wasn't the freedom that God had in mind. See, if Moses, in his strength, could have taken on an entire army with his one sword, and by the power of God, taken out all of Pharaoh and his armies, this muscular man who... One man destroyed an entire nation. But wait, that wasn't the story. This one man was humbled and he was led out into the wilderness with the people who had just been set free. But Moses was charged with the task of not setting them free but making them free. See, if God had allowed him to stay in that condition and to lead a people from that place, he would have brought them out into the, he would have brought them out probably through the Red Sea. They probably would have bought boats in his own, or made boats in his own strength. They would have taken on armies. They would have fought for their rights and got out of there. They may have, 
but they would never have entered into the divine promise of a people entering into the promised land, having been made free. Let me, let me talk to you about this. So Moses, this man, out in the wilderness, he's just led the people through the opening of the Red Sea. There's miracle after miracle. Led the people out. What a man. What a triumph. And he's in the wilderness with this people who, oh my goodness, it was just so much better where we had come from. The meat, my, the meat was just so good. I am so hungry. I just can't believe that you have taken me out to die in the wilderness. To die, what on earth have you done? Moses, you are the, I just, you are the worst leader that I could imagine. You brought us out here to die. See, if Moses had been set free, he'd be like, screw you guys. I'm walking in freedom. I just took down the armies. I can fend for myself. See ya. Later. Catch you. Catch you up. See you on the flip side. I'm out of here. But this man, Moses, see, it wasn't enough for him to have just been set free. He was a man who was made free. So when the complaints come, when the bickering came, when the, the frustration came, Moses saw beyond the temporary. He saw beyond physical food and he said, hey, come follow me. Be an imitator of me. I'll feed you with manna. Well, this is the Lord. But Moses the man was a foreshadow. And these Israelites are fed with manna that literally falls from heaven day in, day out. See, Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes. Don't eat that stuff. Don't dwell on the things that are temporary. He said, work for food that has its source and its origins in heaven. You know, he says, come to me. No, wait, he says this. He who comes to me will never thirst, will never go hungry. Why? Because I've got an eternal food source for you to eat. I've got truth that will change you on the inside. It'll change your heart and your mind. You'll eat and drink of me and you'll be made free. See, Moses here in the midst of this grumbling and complaining had a capacity on the inside that was beyond just simply seeing the physical freedom. It, was, it no longer was about social justice. It was about divine righteousness. You know, there's so many leaders in the church today that are trying to motivate, mobilize the church to reach the lost, to do good deeds, to do good works, to feed the poor, to heal the sick, to all very good things. Yet Moses had been broken of any need to serve man and man's needs. He had been made free. He didn't have this constant pressure on his shoulders of the people's complaints, of their expectations, of their grumblings to keep the plates spinning. If he had, he would have been long gone. But Moses had been made free. He had a love in his heart that went beyond the complaints and the grumbling of the people who thought that their freedom would come if they could just have a bite of meat to eat. You know, so many in the church today will say things like, if I could just feel the love of God, if I could just this, if I could just that, no. If you could just...
Receive the truth that would make you free. You see, Moses was no longer a man pleaser. He no longer bowed to the expectations of other people, even the good Christian expectations. Now that is a man who is free indeed. You know, it says this, who the Son makes free is free indeed. It's not just a catchphrase. He's saying this, who the Son makes free comes into a kind of freedom that is eternal, comes into a freedom where they no longer are looking for the next buzz, comes into a kind of freedom where their whole thinking has changed so that when the situations and the waves are crashing in around them and on the outside can stand up and say, hey, be still. It's all good. Having been made free, who the Son makes free, is free in the truest and most real form possible. See, if you're free indeed, if you're free in here, you'll never need freedom out there. You'll never need your situations to align, even for spiritual reasons. You'll never make excuses again. See, life is so full with pressures and full with demands that it's so easy to say, oh my goodness, my relationship with God is suffering because my wife has got all these pressures on me. Because my boss is asking me to work overtime without pay. Because Levi is just so active and I just, oh my goodness, I'm just so tired all the time. (laughs) On cue. (laughs) Yeah, he's all good. (laughs) So good. (laughs) It was a timely, timely moment. Hey, wait, don't get distracted by my son now. (laughs) You see, if you think that freedom is something that comes through having all your ducks aligned and the situations in your life just sweet and the way you expected them, you'll never be made free. Back to what we were talking about at the beginning. So Jesus says on his way to the cross, what then? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. You see, it was no longer about being saved from his environment. It was about the glory of God radiating through a man who had been made free. And in that, demonstrating what Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, when we live that way, people start to ask questions. You know, it's not uncommon at my work to have comments made towards me like, why is everyone else running around like headless chickens, but you seem to just be all good all the time? See, these are the kind of comments that start to pop up. Not preaching. Every now and then there's an opportunity, but I wonder if our lives would speak of the glory of God having been made free. So these Israelites, it wasn't enough for them to just be taken out of Egypt. They needed to be brought into the promised land by a man who was already in the promised land. Maybe not physically, but he had entered And so he had needed to be broken from the land that he was previously in and brought into a quality of life where he could become a true spiritual leader, leading a people out from and into. Do you see yourself as a leader? Do you see yourself as the kind of person who leads by example? Not just example in your deeds, example in your life. Are you able to say, imitate me, walk in the same manner that I walk, follow in the same pattern, not just doing the deeds, but entering into 
the life and living from that to such an extent that those around you follow you and enter into the same promised land that you're in because you're acting as a foreshadow, a forerunner, someone who has been there and can then lead others there. So you'll never be able to lead someone into the promised land unless you've entered that promised land yourself. So when Paul's exhausting the church in Ephesians, he's urging them to submit to their masters. Why? Because this demonstration illustrates the evidence of his life in us to the world around us. There's something breathtaking when when you're treated badly, you love. That when your boss does not treat you with the respect and the justice that you deserve, that you submit and honor him. You know, it says this in Titus 2, 9 to 10. Paul, he's urging the church and he says, I urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Listen to this. This is massive. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So that they may adorn the doctrine. So that they might give physical I was going to say testimony, that they might be the living embodiment of the gospel on the earth. That is the eternal purpose of God for his church. This church who have become like him. And so I better read the last verse says this, and masters do the same, oh, sorry, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I find it fascinating that the weight and the context is on slaves obeying your master's. And then just as a passing comment at the end, oh, by the way, masters, if just honestly, just treat them with respect. Just make it easier for them. Interesting. Why? Because I think if he had spent the whole time talking about masters and their responsibility, the people may have been in some way feeling like it was someone else who would determine their freedom. And so masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, know that, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. If you're a master, if you're a husband, if you're a boss, do whatever you can to love, to cover those who you're leading knowing that ultimately it's not your responsibility to bring them into this life, but it's your responsibility to create an environment, give them every opportunity for them to enter into this, into their own freedom. So he says, masters, come on, come on. Don't just make a profit for yourself. Think about these slaves. Think about those under you. Think about how you can mentor them, build them up, because to be honest, they'll probably end up becoming your bond servants and serving you and living for you in a way that they never would have previously. I just want to clarify what I was saying at the beginning about slavery. What I'm not saying is if being in, say, for example, an abusive relationship that it's about being a doormat. Uh, that's absolutely, totally not it. 
what I'm, what I'm talking about here tonight, and I'm using a hyperbole to make a point of the life that he would have us enter into on the inside, being set free from ourselves so that we can serve. So I just wanted to clarify that. So Father, I pray that we would be people who don't just seek to be set free, but people who come to a knowledge of the truth, a gnosko, a living, intimate knowledge of the truth that makes us free. Who the Son sets, no, who the Son makes free is free indeed. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring revelation, that we would see in a way that we've never seen before, that our attitude, our perspectives would be so altered that we can serve and willingly lay down our lives for you and for one another, that we would enter into a quality of life that has already been purchased, paid for, is available, is within reach for those who would just see who they are in him. So Father, I pray for this living knowledge to touch our hearts, renew our minds, and transform us in our thinking and our attitudes that we would live here as ambassadors, that we would adorn the gospel of God through our lives, that our words would be backed with power because our life illustrates that we live in a quality of life that is above this earth. So Father, we pray this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Cool. Thanks, guys. Um, Rochelle's going to hand out some questions. I wrote the questions before I wrote the message, so <laughs> not all of them might be 100% on, on topic. So do what you can.